It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Man City Show. It's Nigel Rothband back in the chair, and with no City games to report on, I thought we'd take the opportunity over the next few weeks to give our regular guests and contributors a mid-season break and instead conduct a series of interviews, City-related, of course, with some interesting people with a story to tell. My guest this week is a freelance journalist specialising in all things Manchester City, He's written regularly for City Matchday programmes and on the City website, as well as many other publications. And he has written an amazing, amazing book called City in Europe, and it is a must for any City fans for their Christmas stocking this year. Welcome to the Man City Show to Simon Curtis. Thank you very much, Nigel. Uh, good to have you. Listen, let, let's just kick off with uh, kind of your love of City. Where did, where did that all start? Ah, oh, so long ago, so long ago. Um it starts in the mid-70s, unfortunately um, not early enough for me to have uh, seen the great city side of the 68 to 71 period. Um, so I got into them a little bit after that, um, around about the age of uh, seven or eight, I suppose, I became aware of what was going on. Um, but I, uh, most of my family's in Manchester, but we had dislocated by this time to the Isle of Man. Um, so I was brought up there, uh, took me ages to actually physically get to a game because, you know, I, I wasn't allowed to travel. My dad wasn't interested in football at all. Um, nobody in my immediate vicinity, as far as the family was concerned, followed football at all. I was deeply into it just because of my mates at school, this is at primary school. Um, and we used to, used to pretend to be various top players that were that were uh, running around at the time but the one of my best mates was a city fan but my the real um catalyst if you like was my cousin um because he lived in brooklyn's and i used to go over and see him from time to time but he used to come to the island every summer and he'd stay for ages weeks and weeks and weeks and he insisted on wearing a terrible red tracksuit 
Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, as a United fan, y- you would do that, but it used to irk me something something rotten. Um, and as my best mate at school was was a City fan, um, I began to slide in that direction. And there were various things that happened at the right moment for me. There was the Dennis Law back heel. You know, as you will remember, there was almost nothing live on TV in those days. These days, you see every single minute of it wherever you are on the planet. You can you won't miss a second if you don't want to. Um, but in those days, you didn't see very much at all. And I can remember. 73, 74 season uh, during the League Cup run, which took us to Wembley, um, ultimately um, to defeat by Wolves. There was a quarterfinal replay with Coventry. And for some reason, I didn't understand at the time, it was live on TV. Um, and I don't know if you remember that particular game, Nigel. It was a 4 2 replay win after a 2 2 draw at Highfield Road. Because of the, the crisis at the time, there was, a, there was a fuel crisis, there was an electricity crisis. City had used uh, generators to get matches on to, to pump electricity through the floodlights. A lot of the games were played early. So I'd got back from school and turned the telly on to find City v Coventry on the TV. League Cup quarterfinal replay, the weirdest thing to find live on TV in those days. Um, and it was absolutely brilliant. By the end, as you'll remember, Main Road was a mud bath in those days. Very often through the winter months, it was just um, as bad a pitch as as any in the first division. Everybody goes on about the baseball ground being a sand pit, but Main Road was a was a mud bath, wasn't it? Um, I always remember those night games with the floodlights shining off the puddles, and it looked like glass they were playing on because there was so much water on the surface. And this was one of those games. They splashed around, they slid around. Uh, there were lots of goals. By the end, everybody was caked in mud. You couldn't tell on a black and white TV which which players were playing for which team. And I just thought, yeah, well, this this confirms it for me. City's my team. It probably already was by then, but that, that was the final confirmation, I think. And ever since, uh, unfortunately, I've been completely uh, locked into it. Well, I've got a bit of a secret to tell you then now, because in between 1971 and 1975, I was at school in the Isle of Man myself. Really? So there you go. That's interesting to you, but probably not to our seven listeners. But there no, you go. Probably yes. not. I was, I was educated at a place called King William's College in Castletown on the Isle really? of Man. As my, yep. So there you go. So Big fun story. memories of, of the island. There you go. So I've, we have something I've got a, in common. a funny little story for you, a little coincidence. So was I. I guess that might have been the case. So there we maybe off air. We shall have a slightly separate chat about uh, the Indeed. amazing King Williams College and uh, all that that gave us. Um, Absolutely. There you go. So two blues, both at King Williams College. I wonder how many how many can say that. Um, so that that first team you saw, I suppose, was that kind of was was Dennis Law and 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 who else yeah. was kind of in, in the that side? They just t- tail end of the Dennis Law teams. team, Colin Bell. Um, so sad I didn't see you know Colin Bell in proper action. Uh, saw him later on in the seventies after after the injury, but as we all know, that never, was never that the was, same player. Never that the same was a, player. a much reduced Colin Bell. Still, yeah. as we'll see in one or two of the stories from yeah. those European days, still having an influence, but uh, really playing on one leg, wasn't he? Um, Rodney Marsh. It was that era uh, just before it went into the into the mid seventies, where Dennis Stewart and Peter Barnes, Asa Hartford took over. Uh, f- again, a fantastic team. Um, those people that don't remember City in the 70s, uh, there was lots to to enjoy, lots to enthuse about, wasn't there? 
Indeed. And, and and just the journalism, obviously King Williams College was, was kind to you and, and clearly journalism, is that something you went in straight away? Is that something No, not at been... all. Not at all. I sort of fell into that much later on. Um, I was deeply into English at school. I, I loved English and the one teacher that enthused about anything I did was my English teacher. Um, along with my mother, they would all, always tell me that I was I was writing nice things and to, to keep it up, et cetera, et cetera. None of the other teachers enthused about anything I did. So that stuck out. But no, I, I, I went into languages. Um, I actually studied at university. I studied French and German and politics. So that took me onto the continent straight away. And a lot of my adult life has been spent uh, trekking around the 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 continent of Europe, basically. You know, I've, I've been back in the UK from time to time, but it's I've, I've lived in Holland, lived in Spain, lived in Portugal, um, worked in France and Switzerland, host of other places. The journalism really came came back um, a little bit later. I had been work. I've been writing for King of the Kip, Kipax for a long time, right back in the eighties, late eighties, when it all kicked off with fanzines. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of the earlier contributors to King of the Kipax, uh, which I still contribute to when I when I can manage, um, because it's a, a great institution, obviously, to have been going for that that length of time. Absolutely. Um, and I guess the the onset of of things like Twitter. Um, you know, these recent discussions whether Elon Musk is going to sink Twitter without um, uh, thinking about it properly. Um, it's surprising how many people have, have got gainful employment through links on Twitter. You know, I was, I was uh, contracted to ESPN uh, via Twitter, uh, just somebody who'd seen some of my stuff that I'd been posting uh, onto, the, onto the platform. And that got me a job at uh, ESPN, where I worked for for five or six years. So, you know, it's 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 all coincidental that life is life tends to be like that, doesn't it? It uh, it twists and turns, and if you're in the right place at the right time, some things happen for you. And then, obviously, you got sort of regularly. You're in the Match Magazine, and and you've obviously written other other things as well in in sort of Champions League, so European stuff generally across across football. But but that yeah. that first piece that you did for Manchester City, that must, do you remember what that piece was, that very first piece you did for City? For City, I don't remember, no. I did I did stuff for the City magazine when that was going uh, in, in the 90s. Um, I've done various stuff. Um, there were sort of series, classic matches, things like that, or desperate matches, the obvious things. Um, I just love writing, and I love writing about City. I loved writing about City during the bad days as well. Uh, the mid '90s was actually a very good time to write about City because there's just so much to write about. There's so much going wrong. It's it's somehow easier to write about bad things and disasters than it is to to write about uh, a well-oiled machine winning three and four nil every week. Uh, and that's what comes through in the book, actually, isn't it? It's it's the fact that it's it is not just about some of the glory nights and. Champions League final and a couple of semi-finals and and that great team of the sort of the Malcolm Allison side that you talk very fondly about as well. But it's actually about the desperate times as well of this club and 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 so on. And what I'm interested, sort of, before we move on, and we I want to talk about the book next. But why now? Then that, that interesting question because you've written this book. It's it's not quite ready, is it, Simon? We've not won it yet. So why couldn't you wait just a few more months? We, you know, we win it this season, and and you, that's the why now and not after we've won it. Yes, very good question. Um, 
Well, it, it's actually been more or less ready for two and a half seasons. So the, the funny thing is the, the publishers like the idea of the book. Um, again, through Twitter, an agent picked up on me and said, uh, I'd like to take this this idea onto some some publishers. Are you okay with that? And I said, yeah, fine. Um, and she got a couple interested. So Icon, who went with it in the end, they they were ready to publish a couple of years ago. Then came the pandemic. Then came the idea that perhaps we should wait until City actually won it. Um, so the, the last two seasons, in fact, we've been ready to go. Um, when it got to the final in Portal, we were ready to go. And that would have had a, a very different cover. It would have had um, a City player lifting the cup, but it didn't happen. So we decided to to wait. Um, and then it didn't happen again. And they said, OK, well, let's let's do it because, you know, we, we can't wait forever. Because if we do this every season, the, the, the damn thing might never, never see the light of day. Um, so we decided to go for it. There is an option to to reprint with an extra chapter if the uh, unthinkable happens. So we'll see. Fantastic. We look forward to that very much. And I, I love the way it's written kind of with, with, with the fans, isn't it? These are a lot of these, it's, it's not all your words. This is you having lots of conversation with lots of fans. And in fact, I was very pleased to see one of my best friends, uh, Roger Reed. Um, yes. You talked to Roger, his name gets a mention in there. Yes. Um, and Roger then, was people... very helpful. In fact, he, he, he sent me lots of information, which is great. And I think it's very important. It's, uh, it's the people's club. And, the, you know, this, this, is, this is the real stories, the, the people that were there. The people that travel, the people that remember those moments, those great players. Uh, I think that's very important. It's also important, I think, to include the journalists that were there. Um, so I was very pleased to to get a lot of cooperation from not just some of the the, the guys doing the job today, but uh, some that were there uh, a little further back and could just you know tell you the stories behind the stories. Then you get a real feel for what it was like. But but Roger's stuff about. Um, the inner machinations of, of the club in the 70s, just fantastic. Well, he's worked for the club what, th on three occasions, I think, and he's, and he's back there now as a tour guide. I mean, he's the perfect person to be a tour guide uh, at Manchester City with his history and, and so on. Um, so let's let's sort of go back to kind of those, the, kind of the earliest sort of European stuff. Where, where do you start in the book? Just help people, those that obviously haven't seen it and those that uh, might be getting it in their Christmas stocking this year. Just where do you start in terms of City's European sort of journey? Well, it's a funny story, isn't it? Because, uh, again, opposition fans love to say that we're plastic and no history, etc. But, you know, we were we were amongst the early pace setters in Europe. So obviously it starts with it starts right at the beginning with a disaster. But very, very quickly in the, the first or second chapter, we've got it. We've got a European trophy already. Um, so City weren't the first, but they were in the first four or five teams to to do that uh, from the UK. So it starts with some pretty happy stuff. It starts with Malcolm Allison promising us the earth and falling flat on his face. But um, bless him, he, he got it right with, with Joe Mercer the second time of asking um, in that wonderfully wet and desolate scene in Vienna uh, in the Prater Stadium. Um, and then it goes on to, in chronological order, to look at the sort of serpentine journey of the 70s some great games some fabulous names some big nights under the under the lights at main road uh, and then suddenly it all coming to a halt for 24 years 
Can I just go back to Malcolm? Um, yeah. Because he, you quote him in the book as, as saying that, that we will win the European Cup and we will terrorise Europe, which was kind of one of, one of his quotes, of course. Yes. And of course, I think that was, that was before uh, the people down the road, whose name I never mentioned on this show, could have then went on and won the, the European Cup themselves, of course. So, yes. so yeah. I'm interested just to explore a bit your, what you found out about Malcolm um, and, and, and possibly also just talk about there have been some comparisons made between him and Pep maybe as well in terms of being a genius, being ahead of his time, trying things that no one ever had sort of tried before. I'm fascinated in terms of your, your insight and what you found out and, and what you talk about in the book about Malcolm Allison. I think you're right. I think there are uh, parallels. Um, he was a genius. Um, he was ahead of his time. He was doing things in the late 60s, early 70s that almost nobody else was doing. I read a, a biography of Don Revy recently, um, and they said the same thing. I think oh, but that's not actually true uh, to the extent that Malcolm Allison was doing it. He was such a deep thinker, and he was a deep thinker in a continental way. Uh, he was um, following the Hungarians of the, the mid-50s when everybody else thought they were ridiculous. You know, people looked at Pushkas and said, well, he looks like a, a, a fat landlord. Um, but Allison immediately, he went and saw him training with the Hungarian national team and immediately clocked Puskas and said, well, that's that's something else. That's a different level. You know, uh, he may have been a little rotund uh, compared to some of his teammates, but he had an ability and a technique that Alison thought, well, that's something we don't have in England at the moment. And he watched the Hungarians and, and the way they pushed the ball around, the way they set themselves up. Um, he went to the, the, the critical game at Wembley where England had their pants taken down well and truly by a fabulous Hungarian team. And he took a load of his teammates with him from West Ham to watch that. And from that point on, I think Alisson was, was a step ahead of most of the other managers and coaches in, in England. He was, he was thinking on a continental level. He was watching for all the little extras that might make a difference for City, you know, right down to changing the kit, which you think, well, that's neither here nor there. But he did. He changed the kit to the red and black stripes, which we all love so much now and all hope every summer that they'll come back. They've <laughs> sort of done it this time, but skewed them um, diagonally, unfortunately. Um, you know, right down to those tiny details, he had dancing coaches, he had uh, fitness coaches, he had dietitians, all sorts of people that in, in late 60s England was completely unheard of. Um, so what about Simon? The, what about the argument that that he was a fantastic number two to, to Joe Mercer, but actually he didn't quite cut the mustard as a, as a manager, and he was far better. The, the kind of the yin and yang, if you like, that that sort of very that very studious, that kind of quite formal Joe Mercer who managed upwards, managed the board much mm. better, allowed Malcolm to do all the chaotic stuff that he got on with. I mean, yes, the, I think he, that's he, fair he, enough. He, never, he wasn't a great success as a manager wherever he went, was he? Really? No, I think that's fair enough. It, it, we have to remember in those days that the management setup for football teams was very different to now. You know, Pep Guardiola just has to sort out the football side of things. And even that, he's helped by an army of, of tacticians and coaches and, and spies. Whereas in Malcolm Allison's time, you had to do a bit of everything. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't so often that you had a, a duo in charge, which we, we kind of had with Joe Mercer and, and Malcolm. Malcolm was the maverick, obviously. Joe was the the the, the stabilising force, if you like. 
Um, it worked. It worked very well, I think, for a long time. But Malcolm being the character he was, he got itchy feet. He'd already talked to Juventus. People were looking at him and were interested in him. He liked the spotlight. He liked the limelight. He was working at London Weekend Television doing uh, spots with uh, Brian Moore for the big match. Um, he loved all of that. The football Malcolm was a quiet, studious watcher of the tiniest details. But there was the showbiz Malcolm that would go to the, the Raymond Review Bar with a, a group of journalists tugging along behind him. And it was kind of schizophrenic, wasn't it? But City's also been a schizophrenic team for a long time. So it, it, I think it all fitted. You know, Malcolm's a great hero of mine. He came back and tried to do it again in the late 70s. And that's when he was really shown up badly because he tried to do his maverick um, look at me stuff again. And it, it was just too too much too quickly. Um, but there was genius there, that's for sure. That was there for all to see. And talking of genius, how would you describe the comparisons between him and Pep? Where would you where would you sort of see those similarities? I think the the daring tactical stuff, uh, the innovation. I mean, when people look at Pep Guardiola, they they see someone who's who's a cut above the rest as well. Really, um, we might have time to come on to the the European moments where Pep has has also fallen on his face. So there's there's a, a slight fragility there as well that links them both. Um, I was talking to someone about the 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 two games with Munch and Gladbach, which were Big Mal's last European games with City in 1979. I'm sure you remember them well. Yeah, this what, is the run, the, run, the run to the quarterfinals in The run to the quarterfinals. Is... This was the quarterfinal with Munch and Gladbach, having beaten um, 20 and standard Liège and absolutely pulverised Milan, which was a superb... That, about you know top top European performances that three nil against Milan um, ranks alongside most I would say um, we got to the quarterfinals and what did Malcolm do he stuck in Nicky Reed for his debut to mark Alan Simonson footballer of the year I mean that's just fantastic isn't it the the daring do of that. Uh, extraordinary risk taking. Really, he had Colin Bell. He had he had Dana. He could have could have put any number of players in there, but no. He thought it's a it's a quarterfinal in Europe against a team that in those days was the equivalent of Bayern Munich today in German football. They were the big guns, Borussia Mönchengladbach. So in he goes with Nicky Reed marking Alan Siemensen. Uh, terrific, really. We had Tony Henry, reserve midfielder, playing with number nine on his back. Um, he had inverted wingers. We had Mike Channon playing wide at one point. All sorts of things going on. You thought, what on earth? It didn't get the attention in those days that it would today. You know, pe people would be all over it today. But just that, that those two games with Munch and Gladbeck, he was doing so much stuff. It's incredible. So we've we've done the so we've we've won the cup in seventy. We've kind of um, kind of got, we've come forward to the sort of seventy nine kind of quarterfinals. Um, we then went through a bit of a lean period, didn't we, after that? There wasn't, there wasn't much to celebrate. Was I, it, 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 how do you then cover that, that in the book in terms of that, that, those years of literally nothing, no European football at all? It's, it's well, if of I was empty, Brian Clough, I might empty put three empty pages, yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> three empty pages and, and then we move on. Yeah, exactly. And it's a bit, and that's what it was like, wasn't it? It was, it was. That's, that was precisely what it was like. It was... Yeah. Uh, 
I, I just want to go back to something that I know we've we've moved on from the seventy cup final, but we had a, a question on Twitter um, about that final, um, and in terms of clearly there was the FA Cup replay that night, of course, yeah. Um, yeah. and it wasn't live on television at all. So we yeah. all had to rely on transistor radios and uh, and any any other way of getting our news, of course, and, and couldn't yeah. watch it live. Yeah. Um, do you think it would have been different if it was one of the big boys in those days, do you think, or do you think that was just the way it was, that there weren't enough channels to go around and, uh, and it was the FA Cup sort of... But can you imagine in this day and age, an English side in a European Cup final, and it's not on telly, sorry, lads, we've got, we've got a replay of a Cup final to watch. I think there were a few things um, working on that um, that scenario that night. Leeds were the big uh, the big draw, weren't they? Um, and Leeds v Chelsea was a very big game in 1970. Uh, cup final going to a replay was a new thing as well. The FA Cup was the thing in those days. Um, unimaginable for kids looking at the state of the FA Cup these days, which is very very sad. But uh, um, certainly straight through to the the middle of the 80s, perhaps the late 80s, the FA Cup meant so much more. Um, Plus, it was City, um, so perhaps that might have played a role. Uh, Plus, it was the Cup Winners' Cup, which I guess some people might consider the third most important European trophy, although I don't remember it being seen as that uh, at the time. I remember the Cup Winners' Cup was um, considered a little bit odd because it was... Uh, just the cup winners, naturally, as we can guess from the from the name, which meant sometimes the national cup winners from various countries, England included, were a little bit off the wall. You know, it might be second division West Ham, second division Sunderland. Mm. Um, so there were some strange teams knocking around in the Cup Winners' Cup. So all of those things together perhaps um, went against City. But uh, the most important thing, I think, was there just weren't enough TV channels. Sure. And just before we move on, I've got one word written down here as well. I'm just interested to get your view, and I think this is, comes from Roger as well, actually, to be fair. It's him. He's prompted me on this one. It's the word hooliganism as uh, well, yes. kind of du- du- <laughs> during that period. And, and because we're, we're quite fortunate nowadays with segregation and, and, and better policing and better stadia around around the world generally, mm. um, that we and, and, and fans are, <laughs> I'm saying generally, we're not saying there's no hooliganism. Of course there is. There's some idiots all over the place. But, but mm. it was pretty bad in those days and 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 interested to know kind of what you picked up from your research and what people were telling you and indeed your your own experiences of traveling around europe in 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 those days yeah i've been pretty lucky myself but um certainly roger's stories of going with the club uh to places like enskede and uh turin and various outposts in those 70s days um Sounds like a bit of an eye opener, to be honest. Certainly, the the ones close enough to England for plenty of fans to travel because it wasn't quite as easy those days as it is today. Just to hop on a cheap flight and you're anywhere in Europe, but to get on a train and get a ferry across to Belgium or Holland, that was certainly doable. And I think the city fans did it with um, enthusiasm and in some numbers, and that occasionally led to. Um, a number of problems, I guess, uh, included in, in amongst those, talking about hooliganism, makes me think of a, a home game, in fact, the one with uh, Vidsev Lodz, which was a single act of hooliganism, but it had quite an impact on City because it was the game, the home game, first leg. Um, again, we knew very little about Vidsev Lodz um, in those we could, days. We couldn't, even, we couldn't even pronounce their name, most of still, us. Still can't, Nigel, still can't. <laughs> um, 
2-2 it was, but um, that was thanks mainly to an unheard of Polish footballer called Boniek, <laughs> who was about to become a world star. He was about to go to the World Cup. He was about to do unmentionable things in the name of Juventus. Um, but nobody had heard of him when he got to Main Road. And he single-handedly brought Lodz back into that game. City were two up. He brought it back to 2-2. And unfortunately, one poor fellow in the North Stand got so overexcited about it all, he, he came onto the pitch and uh, tried to have a word with him. Not sure in which language, but he got very close. Uh, close enough for UEFA to tell City the next European game would be behind fences. Um, so... Peter Swales must have been livid because that was a, a huge extra cost to put up fences around the ground. And that was the first time that um, uh, City had had to do that around the perimeter, at least. We'd had segregation uh, uh, up bits of the Kipax uh, for particular games in those mid-70s days. But we'd never had fences around the, the front of the North Stand uh, and around the perimeter. And that's what uh, kicked that off, unfortunately. So, yes, there was there was certainly some hijinks away from home, but there were one or two moments at home as well. Do you want to bring us up to date then with kind of the, the, the start of the kind of those more successful years then? So we kind of leave, let's leave the 70s behind. Um, and, and, and Simon, bring us up to date with kind of where, where things started to get better, where kind of almost became the norm that Manchester City were through to uh, Champions League. Uh, so, so, so where, where do you pick up next then with your book? Well, 24 years later, basically. 24 yep. years later brings us to 2003. And yep. for most of us, I don't know what you felt about that in, uh, ensuing period. I almost never considered the prospect of European football. Um, I would go home and away, enjoy myself. There were good seasons, there were poor seasons, there were relegations, promotions, all sorts of hijinks as usual with City. Um, but not for a moment did I imagine us being back in Europe. And then suddenly it happened uh, under Kevin Keegan. Even that was a bit uh, odd because it was a, a fair play ticket that we got in. We'd finished further down the table than I think Everton um, but Everton didn't get in, and we did because we'd had fewer yellow cards. It was completely ridiculous, really. Uh, <laughs> in fact, we did this twice, didn't we? Um, yeah. Those are the first two re-entries into into European competition were were via the fair fair play ticket, um, and it wasn't even then. After that huge break, it wasn't for for quite a while before we stabilised to become anything close to resembling what we've got today, which is. Uh, England's most steady and consecutive uh, participants in European competition, in the highest European competitions. So we went went back and beautiful bit of city irony. After 24 years waiting, we were drawn to play in Wales. <laughs> it's just beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. And I can remember the 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 total network solutions for it was they, the mm. total network solutions manager saying to the press how delighted he was to be receiving City and what a great moment it was for his club um, and how sad he felt for City to have waited for 24 years and then be knocked out of European competition by a Welsh team. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. The, the highlights of the book, I think, isn't it? That T, the TNS game. I mean, it's it's in there as being a sort of one, one of the one of my highlights, certainly, for sure. And mine as well. So, so 
Where do, where do we go next? I suppose, do we have to wait for Pellegrini? Is that, is that really when, when we really start to have some successes? Is there much between TNS and, and Manuel Pellegrini worth, worth talking about? There's so much, Nigel. How much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> I, I personally loved the, the Roberto Mancini years for many sure. reasons, but also on a European front. I think Mancini turned us into winners, first of all. Obviously, Keegan had some fun moments, but um, he was really too much of a loose cannon to to take us any further. Uh, certainly his team building ideas were a bit, bit rocky as well. But Mancini brought something completely different to us. We won the league, obviously. Uh, he took us into the Champions League for the first time. But some of the European adventures um, under his guidance were quite classic as well. I mean, we, we had the Tevis not refusing to come on in Munich. Zeko also going mad that night. That was just theater. I was watching from from the home end because I couldn't get a ticket with the with the city fans and just incredulous at, at what was going on. That was under Mancini. Mancini himself was the source of some great European stories as well. You know, his his reaction to Balotelli's grass allergy in Kiev just couldn't believe what was going on. You know, he turned into a poet that night when he, when he was asked by the press what he thought was happening. Um, and I, I got a couple of really good stories from Daniel Taylor of The Athletic, who was traveling with them for The, for the Guardian at, uh, in those days. He was, he was The Guardian's northern football correspondent around that time. And he said Mancini was just brilliant press. You know, every time they traveled with Mancini, something happened. Um, he was very superstitious. So he refused to let the players back on the plane on one trip back from uh, Turin, from the game with Juventus, because uh, they couldn't find the same meatball meal that the players had been given on the previous occasion that they'd been around that part of the world. So he didn't want them to to travel. He was that superstitious. He also took them to, um, I think it was Romania for the Timisoara game. Um, And there was a, a... bit of a mess with the hotel because the, the squad had been booked into a hotel which had a discotheque in the basement but when they looked a little more closely at the discotheque it seemed to be uh, occupied by ladies of the night and Mancini obviously wasn't too keen on that and then ordered the entire city squad out of the hotel and to swap with the journal journalists. So all the journalists had to move into the dodgy hotel and City moved into theirs. Not sure what the journalist reaction to that was, but uh, that goes unrecorded in the book. But fabulous times. You know, it was the beginning of City being taken seriously in Europe. But as you know, it took two or three seasons for that to uh, begin to, to solidify. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get all the latest World Cup headlines and bite-sized opinion on the World Cup Whistleblowers Daily Podcast. 
Join Mark Smith and a rotating lineup of contributors from the world of football and entertainment as they dissect all the big talking points in one small package. Whether it's bringing you reaction to the games, fallout from a bad managerial decision, or just the latest scandal to engulf the host nation, the World Cup Whistleblowers Daily Podcast will be covering it concisely every weekday of the tournament. Search for the Whistleblowers wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think, Simon, that Mancini got the credit he deserves? Because after all, as you mentioned, we we did win the Premier League with him and and wore his scarf wonderfully as well. And <laughs> yes, set, set a trend for thousands. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and and had had some of us wondering about our masculinity from time to time. He looked so debonair, didn't he, on the on the touchline? We thought, well, I'm I'm having slightly worrying thoughts about Mr. Mancini. He looked so lovely. Um, yeah, I, I think he does get um, a decent amount of credit. I would give him more. I, I think, you know, he, he really was the catalyst to to where City are now. Um, we'll come to, to what part Pellegrini played in a second, and obviously mm. Pep after that has done fantastic things. But um, Mancini won us the league, and he got us into the Champions League, didn't get us out of the groups, but, you know, he put the foundations in, and he was really the first manager that had that continental caliber mm. that made people look at us and think this is a this is a serious player now they may not be quite where they want to be but they're going places and you've mentioned obviously pellegrini i was slightly hasty in mentioning him before mancini so thank you for bringing me back on that but but pellegrini I, and again i've always felt sorry for him because we all knew who was coming next and it was kind of a bit of a kind of a a holding role that he had to sort of keep the seat warm for us for this this bloke that's going to be coming from spain um but actually from a european point of view got us to our first semi-final in the champions league and 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 did did good stuff with the club how would you kind of summarize the the pellegrini years and and particularly the any stories in the book that you think would be relevant for us to hear well it was a funny time wasn't it under pellegrini he he was a in many ways a funny choice um after after mancini a very different character a little bit dour um clearly older but with a pedigree for playing much more open attacking football. So we didn't really know quite what to expect because we'd had Mancini with his Italian upbringing and his international background being much more cautious, much more organised. Pellegrini was sort of organised chaos in a way, wasn't it? And it was beautiful to watch. I think most of us were very surprised at how beautiful it was and how exciting it was. Uh, We shouldn't have been surprised because he did that with Malaga and he did it with Villarreal. And he'd done it with both on the highest European stage. So he knew what he was doing. He was just a little bit gung-ho. Um, but that quickly became delicious, I think, at Main Road. We've always liked an attacking team. We've always liked a team that wins 4-3 instead of 1-0. And we got plenty of that with Pellegrini, didn't we? We got plenty of much more than 4-3 as well. Um that was a, a very interesting period. The one thing I will say is he did move us on in Europe. Obviously, he got us out of the groups finally. He was a little unlucky with the um, the draws with Barcelona, but we finally got beyond that as well in his last year. I think he let himself down with that final farewell because his final farewell was that terribly stale semi-final with Real Madrid. Um, 
first time in a Champions League semi-final. City, with the history we have, you'd expected all sorts of fireworks to go off and something truly dramatic to unfold in front of our eyes. But it didn't. It was extremely cautious. Um, a draw at home, no goals. Meaning we travelled to Madrid in hope, but with trepidation. And we thought, well, maybe the Pellegrini City will emerge in the Bernabeu, of all places, and take us to a fabulous first-ever Champions League final. But again, it was this crab-like stuff um, under the shell, shuffling about. Um, it, it, it was a, a surprisingly disappointing end, I would say. And we went out with a whimper. It was an own goal in the end, I think, off for Fernando, if I remember rightly. Um, desperately disappointing after the, the spectacular football that he'd brought us in the first two seasons. Um, but he did move us on, and I think he's he's remembered fondly for that. Do you think Pep will, or do you think Pep's stock is devalued because despite the enormous investment, not my words, the, all the other journalists talk about this the whole time, yes, the enormous, the obscene amount of money that's been spent, and he's still not won the Champions League, bringing us <laughs> up to date here a little bit. So do you think his stock's devalued, is that? Because he's, no, I he's, think had, it shows he's had plenty of resources. I think it shows how difficult it is to win the Champions League. Um, winning the Champions League, like any cup competition, I know it's a league and a, a knockout, but winning any competition that ends at the pointy end with knockout games, it balances on all sorts of factors that may or may not be there on the night in question. Um, we've seen some strange things from Pep, certainly, and there is certainly an argument that his um, some of his European nights have been spoiled by overthinking, um, especially when it gets to the critical moment. And maybe Malcolm Allison had a bit of that as well. He liked to, to tinker with the team formation we've seen with the, the game in uh, Gladbach, where he did all sorts of unmentionable things. And, and Guardiola did the same, didn't he? There, there are, I think, four games that stand out where he did tinker at, a, at the most inopportune moment. Um, I think he's aware of his greatness. He's aware of how he's seen. And he's aware that there's a bit of a gap in that um, role of honour, if you like, uh, which perhaps makes him try a bit too hard, perhaps makes him want to do things that people say, wow, look at that. He's done it again, and he's done something that nobody else would have done. But did that need to involve the, the stuff that we saw against Lyon, where he had Fernandinho at right back, uh, obviously struggling very early on, uh, and I think we had um, Rodri playing as well. So it was heavy with defensive players against a, a team that at the time was seventh in the French league. He put newly acquired Aymeric Laporte, who was a centre-half, in at left-back at Anfield uh, in that never-to-be-forgotten evening and had Gundogan floating around in a role that he hadn't played before. He went to Spurs and decided not to play either... Uh, De Bruyne or Leroy Sane. The story goes on, you know, and obviously that culminates in the final in Porto. <laughs> oh, look, no holding midfielder. Yeah, um, I was there that night. Um, Me too. And, and I think 
Uh, I've not done many European nights, actually. I have to say, I'm a, I'm a, a regular at the. Uh, I was a regular at Main Road, regular at the Etihad, and, and away games. Well, but Europe, I've, I've not. I've not done. I, I the one that I did do, which I'll just keep, just because I was there. I would keen to talk about in, in the uh, in the Pep era was uh, Monaco away, which was uh, an interesting one as well, where we kind of that was some game that was over over two legs. And, yeah, and, there's another know, we one. Went, and I, I thought that was when you said there were four games. I was waiting if you to say maybe that Monaco fixture as well might have been another one as well. Would you? We you could perhaps add it. Yeah. Can, um, can we have five, please, sir? Can we, we can, can we have five. Definitely, Thank you, sir. we can. Yes, we can. Um, that Monaco home game, one of the best I've ever three, seen. Three one at home, wasn't it? Was it three one at home? Or I mean, the, the the city, the game in Manchester, the five three. Oh, sorry, five. So of course, five three at home. Five yeah. three three one in Monaco. Yeah. Um, Really, how how we went out to that Monaco team, I don't know. It was a very good Monaco team. It was um, dismembered had a couple of decent players. Had a couple summer. of decent players in there. Very, I seem very to remember. good team. Yeah, um, strange left back. I seem to remember, yeah. but the rest of the I, rest I forget of them his name good. now. He, he looked good on the night. I can't remember his name for the life of me. No. But he, he looked decent on the night. Yes, it slips my in fact, mind. No, it's as being well. serious. He he was he was fantastic. He was actually he was brilliant. He, he really stood out was, as being the best something very was, very special. The best player was Bernardo Silva, of course, uh, in the game at uh, the Etihad. He was just unbelievable that night, or at least he was, he was unbelievable I, for, for half the game, I think. Um, they were the two players I was talking about, to be honest, yeah, just in case yeah. anybody missed that, yes. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I can remember that first half at the Etihad where where Bernardo Silva just ran rings around everybody. He was playing on the right side of midfield quite quite wide, but he kept coming in onto that wand of a left foot that he has that we're all very familiar with these days. And he was running rings around us. But what a dramatic game, you know, for, for City to turn it round and for David Silva, the other Silva on the pitch, to yeah. rule the roost in the second half. Absolutely fantastic. What a what a theatrical game that was. But still we went out in the end. So there there we go. That's the fifth of the of the four games that I, I mentioned. When you do your next book, make sure it's five, please. And just mention yes. Nigel Rothband next to Roger Reed in the beginning as well, in terms of the credit. So just 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 for me, uh, just going back. To, thank you, sir. Just going back to that Porto final because I guess it's it's the only final we've been to, um, and it was odd anyway. It was strange anyway because of course it was COVID. There's only about fourteen thousand, I think, you report in in your book in 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 the crowd. It was it was just very socially distanced, and we all yeah. had to fill in four hundred forms to get on a plane even and get there. And and and, and the rest we know about and and. What did you pick up, and and how do you report it in in the book in terms of that night? Obviously, the the no holding midfielder was was the oddest decision, and and yet he could well have been a genius, but he wasn't, and we lost. And it just just your your reflections on that. It is our own it is our only Champions League final. We we should probably spend a few minutes on it. Again, it's beaut- beautifully City, isn't it? City being a club that likes to do things the hard way. Um, there we were finally um, in the big game. And it's spoilt by a number of things, uh, but mostly by the pandemic, because the, the stadium would only be a quarter full. Um, there was the worry of mixing. Uh, how much could we mix? Um, where can we mix? Which forms do we have to fill in? Um, I can remember I was there that day, but I can also remember being in Porto for the UEFA Cup game years before under Mancini. Um, I was actually reporting for ESPN that night. So I, I watched it from the from the, the press box. But the day in Porto had been just splendid, absolutely mm-hmm. splendid. I mean, Porto's a beautiful city. 
yep. the way it, it, the steep sides of the city come down to the the, the Douro River as it flows out there. Um, and we had just had absolutely brilliant days. One of the best days following City away. I, I, and unlike you, I do like going to European away. So I've, I've been to many of the the modern era away games, and it's it's just a fantastic thing to see my city, if you like, that I remember in the 70s and 80s plodding along with with Derek Parlane, Jim Tolmy and and Mikhail Bischoff and all sorts of oddities floating about. And here they are walking out at the new camp and walking out at the Bernabeu and work, walking out in, in Basel and Seville. It doesn't matter where. It's just fantastic, you know. But that day was strange in Porto. Um, it felt wrong for many reasons. And then when we got the team news, it, it felt completely wrong. When we got in the stadium, it felt wrong everything felt wrong the performance looked wrong when they started off and uh, he didn't even try to um correct that um mm-hmm. that that wrong if you like um and it just sort of petered out didn't it such a such a shame but uh, again all part of the rich city story uh, and talking about the rich city story in typical city we we maybe should think about the last semi final we were in as well um <laughs> which is kind of typical city as well. Uh, again, Real Madrid and that late fight back. And well, I think, was, that t- think, was that typical city or was that I just think supporters Real Madrid? Of, supporters of our age, Nigel, um, are quite happy to take that because we know where, where the club has come from. We remember all sorts of dreadful things, unmentionably poor things happening. Um, and they happened every week. There was almost no light against the the shadow. It was all dark for for years and years and years. So to be battling against Real Madrid, who were practically the owners of the trophy, let's face it, they won the first five trophies in when the when the thing was founded, and they've been at it ever since. They are royalty. I mean, it gets up our noses when they start being smug about everything, but. At least they have a reason to be smug because they are the top dogs. And to be going head-to-head with Real Madrid over two games that were just astonishingly dramatic, I loved it. I mean, the the end in Madrid was just unbelievable. But it was also fitting because that's how City have done things right from the beginning. Um, And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the the moments where you, your heart just drops out of your boots and you think, oh, my God, they've done it to us again. Because they don't do it very often anymore. They're, they seem to be leaving it for the big moments these days, certainly in Europe, but uh, we'll get there. That's okay. Be- before we wrap up, uh, a question I'm asked all the time and, and I'm keen to ask you as well, and I need a straight answer from you, <laughs> which is you can only have at the end of the season the Champions League or the Premier League. Which one do you want, Simon? I want the Champions League. Does that change, would you say? Might you have said, until we really dominated the last two or three seasons ago, might you might you have said, like I have said, let's dominate our domestic league, let's win the Premier League season after season after season, but maybe absolutely. I'm just changing that a bit. It's the monkey on our back, isn't it? It is. Absolutely. I would, I, I would up to have reasonably recently, always have said, like almost everybody else, Premier League for me. Uh, you've got to be top dog in your own backyard first and then take whatever extras come. But really, the Champions League needs to be won um, because we've not been there. 
we've not done it yet. It's it's the the final frontier, if you like, um, and I think that's that's the bit that is missing. Uh, and once it's done, we can all happily just sit down and breathe a bit. And before we go, uh, a couple of favourites from you, if I may. Uh, you've clearly been extremely lucky and fortunate and you've had huge fun uh, and huge experiences going around the world following your beloved Manchester City and it's all captured in this brilliant book. Um, favourite ground for you, would you say, of all the grounds you've been to, which is your favourite and why? That's, That's a difficult question, I know, I'm sure. It is a difficult been, question. Been many, you, know, you may give me one or two if you can't quite pick out one, but give us some highlights of maybe I the I think the watching, sort of watching City play superbly well in Seville, uh, was one of my favourites. The ground was old-style Spanish, so mostly an open bowl, but it smelt of history and a few other things. It had a a front um, entrance covered in tiles, beautiful, a beautiful city, fantastic weather, and a a purring performance from city. Um, So a place like that, it's difficult to to surpass i would say so i'll say seville okay and the favorite game then as well if you could just pick of, of all the and i'm holding up here just to show you i've got my copy here simon uh, i know this is <laughs> only a podcast but uh, here it is and and uh so so yeah so favorite game if you can pick one that you talk about in this great book is there one that you can pick out that's maybe a favorite i think that's impossible i think city have given us such rich entertainment over the years um in in both in positive and negative ways we've always been hugely entertained by them uh, even if it's jamie pollock heading uh the ball past margitson in that <laughs> ill-fated game with qpr it's always been lively it's always been worth watching so it would have to be a whole list of games and they're not necessarily the ones where we trounce someone um we we talked about the Real Madrid games last season you know i know they're fresh in the memory but for for quality and for drama you can't get much better than what we saw over two games against Real Madrid in last season's uh, semi-finals um just spectacular football um but down through the years, I mean, I could give you one from practically every European campaign that that had something special about it. But let's let's stick with Real Madrid. That's that's uh, close to where we are now, and hopefully, it's uh, it's um, going to be one one better next season. Well, listen, or this season, um, even. absolutely, City in Europe. Um, from Alisson to Guardiola, Manchester City's quest for European glory by Simon Curtis is a must for every City fan this Christmas. Uh, where can we get this, Simon, if people are listening and they can put it on their Christmas shopping list? Where, where, where best to get this amazing book? Well, it's in Waterstones, so you can get it in the, in the local high street uh, bookshop, hopefully. Um, it was in stock in the City store. Um, I'm not sure whether they've still got them, but uh, certainly they were stocked up. Um, when I last looked. So there are a variety of places. Um, if not, you can get it on Amazon. You can go to the, the website of Icon, the publishers. So the variety of places you can get it. Simon Curtis, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for spending your time with us. Uh, really great to see you. Um, this is Nigel Rothband saying thanks for listening and we'll talk to you all very, very soon. If you want to advertise on or sponsor this show, check us out at playbackmedia.co. Sports Social Podcast Network. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.